Hey there, welcome to Smoke and Science, the podcast put on by our team at Smoke and All, where two pharmaceutical scientists break down the research for cannabis and other natural products and how you can use this information in your everyday lives. I'm Riley. And I'm Miyabi. We know it's extremely difficult to talk about cannabis when someone has preconceived notions or a negative bias towards the plant, which isn't their fault. There's been a ton of propaganda advocating against it over the years. Today, we're going to help you learn to speak about cannabis science with confidence and help you become an independent patient or cannabis user. And we're not alone. We're lucky enough to be joined today by Shango Lose, host of the popular cannabis podcast, Shaping Fire an expert at all things cannabis business, caregiving, cultivation, and advocacy. Shango is great at communicating all of that knowledge so anyone can understand it. Together, we're going to share some difficulties we've had and some tricks we use to break it all down. So let's get this sesh started. Let's do it. Welcome to Smoke and Science. Nothing but the facts about our favorite plant. Hey, Shango. I'm so excited to have you on this podcast. I actually started my ever first podcasting journey with you on Shaping Fire. And so this is kind of full circle, but we are very happy to have you. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here with you and Riley. And uh, and I thought it was cool too, right? Because uh, uh, you and I, we started our friendship with your your being a guest on my show. And then again, you know, for me to be able to come here and and chop it up with you for for your folks, uh, it does feel like a good closing of a circle. So I'm stoked to be here. I also think it's full circle that all of us kind of invariably met through social media through TikTok. <laughs> It's yeah, it's not usually known for an educational app, but there is some amazing educational videos on TikTok. You just got to find them. Yeah. Well, it was funny at the beginning when I first got it, you know, it's all like, you know, people dancing and stuff. And then uh, one of my friends says, no, you're not using it right. Go ahead and search hashtags for a couple of your most favorite things. And you have to, you have to feed the algorithm with a little something to get it going. So, you know, I put in, you know, sushi and cannabis and tide pools and off I went. So (laughs) I love it. That's so cool. (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about, um, you know, how we all communicate cannabis education and cannabis science material to different audiences, specifically people who are against it, which actually I'm sure all of us have had our fair share of experiencing some of that with creating content. Uh, Have you ever experienced that with your podcast or with any social media? Uh, no, not on social media, not with my podcast. But before I started the podcast, you know, I've been a community builder in cannabis for a long time. And um, I was involved with uh, trying to uh, change or adapt the zoning on Vashon Island where I live so it would allow cannabis businesses. And so I was very much involved with uh, organizing both the uh, licensed and unlicensed, you know, cannabis growers and, uh, and other interested party on the island. And then working in contrast to, but hopefully hoping hand in hand most of the time with like the concerned parent types, you know? So, um, but my social media, by the time I got to my podcast, um, you know, there was enough of an audience that they were, they were ready to be nice to me. Right. It's not like I was trying to do this in the nineties or something. Um, but really it was more in my community that I had to, um, talk people out of their 
trauma-based positions. Yeah. So what were kind of the pushbacks that you received in the community when you were, you know, trying to tell people about the benefits or even like the agricultural economic benefits or, you know, what approach did you take with talking to people who are against it? Well, the biggest concerns that they had um, were around um, product in the licensed stores going out the back door and getting in the hands of kids. And, and, and you know, um, once you get some of these like rabble rouser type moms who are like really against weed and they really want to be loud about it, the only way to really address that is go talk to them. And what I found was um, 100% of the time when, when we talked about the reality of the situation, all of their fears kind of dissipated. For example, um, you know, an explanation of how rigorous the safety standards are and security standards are. So like products not going to be going out the back door. A point I like to bring up here is that in all these legal states, these plants are tracked from seed to sale. Many of them are tracked from before they begin producing THC all the way through to the final product. On any of these products that you buy, you can look and look back through the batches that they were created and they're grown, and many of them can be tracked to exact batches of grows. The next time you're in a supermarket, try to find a salad dressing or any other product that meets that standard. But then you give them a bigger picture and explain that um, if if there's legal cannabis stores on the island and there are uh, places for adults to go get legal cannabis, um, the 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 old market, the unlicensed market, is going to have all this pressure of convenience put on them, and it's going to dry up. And so that's actually going to make the cannabis less likely to get in your kids' hands. And when it was explained that way, um, the parents' organizations like kind of fell in line with the retail stores and said, like, okay, that makes sense to us, and that is how it's played out. Is that? Um, uh, you know, the, the the situation on Vashon has changed from there being a lot of medical growers that were, you know, had diversion going into just like the community um, to just being home growers who are growing, you know, four or five, six plants for themselves. And that tends to get sold into the community less than one person who's running 150 plants. So, so to kind of like, uh, to, to sum up the answer, I would say that when people have fear, um, usually if you, if you, if, if they're, if they're at least open to have open ears, um, you can have a discussion with them about the facts and, and, and their fears often dissipate. Uh, I think one of the things that is important to point out is that there are in many places limits on the amount that you can buy at one time and that most of these come with like rigorous child protection and that people who are purchasing them legally in stores, um, it comes with a bunch of testing, like you were saying, and that there's this metric system from the point, at least here in mass, there's a system from the point of seed to sale where you are tracking that plant the entire time. And it's as safe as anything. Um, I I think if you compare and contrast it to other things that are more dangerous, that are completely unregulated, that enter into black market in kids' hands all the time, like parents' prescription medications, alcohol, et cetera, uh, cannabis actually, when it becomes legalized it's pretty is, tame compared to those <laughs> well, yeah. and it's it's very controlled we have cannabis under under a lot of control so it must just be me and riley then that are getting the naysayers on social media <laughs> 
Well, I think it's also different, like, uh, for a podcast, like Shango's, that are, like, an hour and a half, two hours long. Someone is going to that podcast, finding it and listening because they enjoy what Shango has to say, and they're part of that community. With TikTok, you could be just scrolling around looking for dancing videos, and I pop up, and I'm talking about, you know, cannabis medicine, and it's really easy. It takes four seconds to just comment, like, I don't believe you. You're an addict. Boom. Put that on social media and then keep scrolling. It's just like part of their day. They don't even think about it. You You'll know, note that I don't produce on TikTok, right? Because those <laughs> I are actually those looked are, for you. <laughs> those are the those are the dirty front lines. It's really hard, um, uh, and like that is not how I choose to interact with the public with those little snippy things that everybody says about each other. I'm much more. I feel much more content in a long form podcast with, you know, pretty controlled ways that people interact with me. The loosest place I've got is YouTube because like that's a zoo too. Yeah, I used to respond to a lot of the comments, but now it's just like if someone says something really mean, I'll just comment like, I hope you find peace someday. And I just try <laughs> to keep it like very light and just move on. And that usually like they won't respond to that ever. So that's fine. <laughs> The other nature of of TikTok and short media and Instagram for that like real like reels and this this short the short form um, of education is that it, it equally curbs the opposite um, opinion. So that's one of the challenges that I've had is that and I'm sure like both Riley and I regularly will get tagged in short form videos either on Instagram or TikTok of really aggressively anti-cannabis physicians like medical doctors or nurse practitioners or or people um and even some some that are like real stories that i i think are valid and have a valid opinion um and it's it's interesting because i i don't enter those conversations either just because similar to similar to like having what it's it's a difficult conversation to have just like a what is it? 20 characters or no, not 20, but 200 character response yeah. to a question like this. Um, one of the main ones that I see regularly is um, people saying that cannabis is not safer than alcohol or tobacco. It comes up very, very often. Uh, and I don't believe that that's true. I don't, I don't know if you've, if you've encountered that, if you've said that to people in your community, but I've, I've encountered that across multiple um, multiple parts of social media that there's a lot of um, maybe it's medical doctors. And, and we found out in our last episode of our podcast with Dr. Paloma LaFelt that uh, one of the reasons why that belief is there is because of the way that the medical system educates about cannabis. But I'm trying to break down, uh, you know, how we go about explaining that to someone in like the simplest possible way. Cause no. I, I just say, Oh, it's not. <laughs> You know, in my years of working with cannabis patients, one thing that I have found is that people are not really getting their um, their best advice online anymore. Uh, you know, just like um, just like referral marketing, right? Or, or um, you know, like you can see banner ads and and uh, again and again and again and not want what they're selling. But if your friend tells you, "I tried this really nice soap or whatever, and I love it, and I think you should try it," well, I'm going to take that a lot more seriously than anything I'm going to find on the internet. And um, now that it is way more acceptable for all of us to be talking about cannabis, you know, at at family parties and at the barbecue and at work, right? Um, um, I find that the the information the most 
most effective way that people are spreading quality information is person to person. And so um, I think that's the forefront. You know, we all we all think that we're you know doing a lot, and we we are doing a lot. But really, the real people who are spreading the cannabis. You know, who are, the people who are really evangelizing cannabis are the people who we inspire to then go talk to their families, I think. And I think a lot of that in, in cannabis has to do with the description of the endocannabinoid system and how many things or like what patients could experience when their endocannabinoid system is dysregulated. So a lot of what we put out on the internet is examples of that so that people can go to their physician, their naturopathic doctor, whatever, whoever they like to see and say like, these are the things I'm experiencing. I've heard that these could be linked to um, some dysregulation in the endocannabinoid system. Is this something we can explore? What are some ways you suggest for someone to use cannabis? And that's kind of how that conversation can start. I feel like a lot of people who want to try cannabis as medicine for the first time, it's at first they're saying, okay, I tried these pharmaceutical medications and it didn't work for me. So now I want to try cannabis. And sometimes I feel like physicians, uh, practitioners could treat that with a little more rationale rather than someone saying, okay, I understand that this is linked to the endocannabinoid system. I don't want to try those pharmaceutical medications. Can I explore cannabis as a medication? Um, I think there's like a kind of a discrepancy there and just kind of a difference in how people are treated just based on how they're approaching uh, cannabis as medicine. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I want to highlight one part of that w about the doing your homework before you go and talk to your care provider, right? There is, um, you know, you kind of only get one chance to make a first impression when you bring up cannabis with your with your doctor. And it normally goes one of two ways. Either um, you will come in without, ha not, without having done any of your own research, kind of discombobulated and kind of just go, bleh, cannabis. And they won't get a vibe that you're necessarily all that serious. And so they'll give you whatever ragtag opinions that they may have and kind of hand them back to you. And so the two of you are exchanging like pretty low quality information. But if you do something like, you know, listen to your show, listen to my show, read some authentic scientific papers, you know, get yourself some vocabulary, some understanding of the dosage and, and maybe how, how you'd like to take it, you know, orally or smoke it or whatever. And then you go to your doctor with that. Um, first of all, you will enter that conversation with so much more respect with your doctor. And, and then you'll know pretty fast whether or not they're going to be a willing partner in your healing using cannabis, or if you need to go talk to somebody else. And then if you happen to actually have a caregiver who knows cannabis, well, you know, that's really rare and good for you. <laughs> I, I feel like confidence is so key, what you were bringing up, going in, having the background research. And, and the main challenge that I have, I still have. It's something that I struggle with even today is having the confidence to enter into those conversations and be able to stick with my boundaries of what I know. And it's something that I want to help convey to other people that, first of all, I think it's okay to be fearful that you're going to get stereotyped and that there's going to be stigma because a large number of medical practitioners still have that and carry that. What I've found, at least since I've begun trying to have this confidence is that I go into it with a certainty that I'm not abusing cannabis. And 
the way that I built that certainty came from understanding things about dosing like you described and about routine and about tolerance and withdrawal. And it's still a challenge, but I believe that that's kind of the piece that for me has solidified being um, more confident in my conversations is that I am confident and certain that I'm not abusing cannabis. I think it's possible that people have negative relationships with cannabis and that it's a detriment. But I do not at my core believe that that's what I am doing, even though I use cannabis every day. And I think that can be a little hard for, like, say, a family member who is not comfortable with cannabis. If you started using cannabis as medicine and you're using it daily, that might seem or, you know, even six times a day, that might be hard for someone who's not too familiar with cannabis to understand that, like, you're taking that medicine that many times a day and that's what you need. You're automatically grouped into that stoner category, like you're abusing it, whereas they don't know what you're using. It could be really low doses of something that you take throughout the day to just suppress symptoms. Uh, but because you're taking it so regularly, it could be thought as addiction and um, like that you need it to... Uh, function. Um, and I I don't believe that should be the case. I think some people do need to use cannabis throughout the day, depending on what condition they have and in, in their body and their metabolism and so many other factors. I find it interesting um, how much cannabis um, kind of either demands of us or encourages us towards self-advocacy. Because um, Miyabi talking about boundaries first and sticking up for oneself, and then Riley talking about, you know, holding your ground with family and, and you know, becoming a little impervious to their opinions because families always have opinions. Um, <clears throat> those are both the same thing, which means, which is you matter as a person. You know, um, you know, you can self-advocate whether whether you consider yourself a patient or not. I think in these um, very high anxiety days of stress and quarantine and broken habits that um, that a lot more people are turning to cannabis uh, for a little bit of dissociation just to get through the difficulty of these extraordinary times that we're in. And um, because of that. Um, you know, we're, we are encouraged to stick up for ourselves more or else, um, you know, we'll just be at the whim of everybody else's preferences. And then how, how are you going to get into a self-healing path if uh, you're still blown every which way the wind blows of everybody else's opinions? There's a judgment when you're making that decision for yourself versus the judgment that you're leaving it up to the hands of someone else that you um, are trusting and being responsible, right? Which I think why it's why cannabis users um, need self-advocacy and something that Riley was bringing up and that you touched on too is that these differences in the way that we are having these, you know, having these conversations with different people like family members and trying to get the people to understand, it's, it's complicated when they don't have the same experience as you. And so you're setting a boundary of really saying, hey, my experience is my own. I want to claim that experience. I want to claim this experience and that cannabis provides me with relief uh, versus other things. And, you know, plenty of people dose pharmaceuticals multiple times during the day and or every single day. And many pharmaceuticals, if you don't dose them every day, can cause really serious withdrawal effects. And technically, at the molecular level, it does not cause as severe of withdrawal as many other medications that we, you know, 
regularly accept. And I think the the point of this is just that it works like different things work for everyone. And I've always said that for people who say plants versus pills, um, I really dislike that language. I don't really think that it should be plants versus pills. I think that they're options. And if you are getting relief and if, if medications like pharmaceuticals are working for you in a way that improves your quality of life with minimal side effects, then that's amazing. That's healing and that's growth. And I think that, you know, similarly, if cannabis is your answer to that, then that also is amazing and healing and growth. And, and neither one of those things has to necessarily be um, better than the other one. Right. The, like the process of healing is so difficult in itself that if you find something that works for you, then you should stick to that and maybe just try to tweak it just a little to perfect it. But if it's working for you, then embrace it. That, that is the goal. That is always the goal. So we've, we've talked about this conversation a couple directions, the patient to the doctor, the patient to the family, the family to the patient. And there's one more that I think is really important to point out because, um, you know, I'm sure you have a, a great deal number of uh, caregivers in your audience, and that is the caregiver to the patient, right? Um, because it's challenging if you're, if you're not the primary, um, if you're not their GP, right, their, their general, um, but you're somebody who's like their nurse or their CNA or, or <clears throat> a friend in their family who's providing a lot of advice. I always encourage folks in those in those positions to speak in ways that in um, uh, empower their patient, right? To be making their own decisions um, because um, I think I think Arayo was just saying how uh, so often people want to give up their power to um, the doctor um, and and have someone tell them what to do, um, but. Um, I think that's important for the caregiver to help them be self-empowered. And instead of saying, I'm the caregiver, I know about cannabis medicine, I'm going to tell you what you should do, switch that around and say, I'm a caregiver, I have researched cannabis medicine, let me explain to you all of your options in cannabis so you can choose what's best for yourself. And it's pretty much the same thing, but one way you empower the patient, the cannabis patient, and the other way you're having them rely on an authoritarian structure again that um, is disempowering. And the I've seen both from caregivers and cannabis, and the latter just always works better. Remember that each and every one of us has a different endocannabinoid system, which is why we all can react differently to cannabis. This is useful if you're talking to someone who's had a really negative reaction or who just doesn't enjoy cannabis because we're all different. And the opposite is also true. Just because we enjoy cannabis doesn't mean that everyone else has to either. And it also means that all of us can enjoy cannabis in our own unique way, which is actually our next topic. That's something that actually one of the uh, first things that we talked about that, Shango, that you and I have in common, that we cannot tolerate super high doses of THC mm -hmm. and that I, I'm very aware when I've hit my max. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the fact that THC is biphasic when it comes to anxiety... I want to quickly reiterate the importance of the biphasic nature of THC and some other cannabinoids. What this means is that low doses, they can cause one effect in your body, and at high doses, they can cause a different effect in your body. So here we're talking about THC and anxiety. 
THC can be anxiolytic, meaning it is relieving anxiety at low doses. But if you take too much THC at high doses, it can actually cause anxiety. So although the low dose versus high dose is going to be different for everyone using cannabis because all of our endocannabinoid systems are different, you always want to start low and go slow and try to find that perfect dose. When I learned that from Dr. Ethan Russo, it really changed my relationship with cannabis because I always thought that um, if I had smoked and I was starting to get anxious, maybe I needed to smoke some more to get over the anxiety, but this is not how the biology works. The fact that it's biphasic, meaning that it's kind of like a bell curve where you you smoked a little bit and you're not really feeling anything. And then you smoke a little bit more and now your anxiety has gone down and you're feeling that, that kind of like good vibe, which was your goal. But then if you keep smoking, you can go over the hump and start feeling anxious again and much more anxious. And, 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 and now it's much harder to change. And so, and everybody's got this sweet spot where the right amount of THC is. And again, you know, your show constantly comes back to this idea of individualized uh, medicine, right? And, um, you know, I have respect for the iron lungs of of the folks that I see online doing huge dabs, but that is not me, right? I've got asthmatic lungs and probably a lot of cannabinoid receptors because a little bit goes a long way for me. And um, I don't like ruining my day by getting super anxious all of a sudden. And so I will, I will always err on the smoking less than smoking more. And um, I don't want to smoke to the point that I'm only on the couch watching cartoons, right? I mean, like I may do that in the evening too, right? But I'm much more of a, of a toke and get out and go kayaking or go out into the forest or all that kind of stuff. And for that, a little goes a long way. I totally agree. And I can I can legitimately feel myself when I begin to teeter on the top of that bell curve and just start <laughs> to swoop down. And I'm like, oh, no, I overdid it again. And then, as you said, like things are not as fun. You do feel anxious. And all of us use a lot of cannabis. And we still get that anxiogenic, meaning you're getting anxiety from that high dose of THC. So Miyabi and I talk about this a lot, and Shango, I'm sure you speak about it with other people, but just keeping track of what that teetering dose is. If you smoke too much or use too much of an edible, write that down in a notebook and say, this was too much. Don't take this much. Um, and then next time, don't don't rely on your memory of just like, how much was too much last time? I think it was 20 milligrams. Like, It's so easy to write down if you keep a little journal just writing, okay, this dose gave me a very pleasurable experience. I was able to go outside, kayak. I was able to enjoy nature, time with my family. This much made me an anxious mess, and I could barely even watch TV without feeling anxiety. Uh, Those are important things to write down, in my opinion. Becoming a regular cannabis user, one of the beautiful things about modern cannabis use is repeatability of results, right? Because now in many states, we do have licensed stores and they do go through potency analytics before they are, you know, before they can be purchased. And so, you know, you can write in your journal, I took a 10 milligram gummy and this is what my experience was, or next time I took half of one or next time I took two versus like, I've been using cannabis for 30 years. The, you know, these analytics have really only been available to, you know, cannabis users for, you know, six, seven years tops, um, much less in many places. That means for 23 years, it was total guess every time people ate an edible. Like 
you know, you know, you'd make them yourself and every time you'd make them a little different. So the strengths are on, you get one from your, from one neighbor and like you could eat three of them and you'd get one from another neighbor and a half will put you under the table. And oh my gosh, every time you were like rolling the dice of potency and it really made it hard to develop repeatable results as a patient for, in my case, treating my brain injury. And so uh, I, I, I'm very happy that patients now in an increasingly normalized you know, country can access, um, you know, uh, stuff that is both homogenized pretty darn well and is tested. It's, it's, it's a total game changer. I think having routine and finding that routine is an incredible gift. I agree. I was not, it took for a very long time to figure out what does and doesn't work. And having analytics is a powerful tool. I love it. I love the advice of giving a journal and keeping a journal because we, we regularly say this too, that unfortunately it is still trial and error. It's largely a trial and error on individualized patients because we are all different and we all have different endocannabinoid systems. And what works for me and for you is not always what's going to work for someone with the same exact symptoms. And I think that's one of the places where cannabis as a medicine has a, um, there's a barrier there, I think, in, in explaining to people who are not pro-cannabis. Like, you know, it's not like ibuprofen where you just, you know, take 200 milligrams, you know, take this, mm-hmm. it will reduce inflammation. It's, it's more complex than that. Um, what do you say to people who have that question about the variability or just in the beginning of just the vast yeah. unknown? Well, the complexity just continues from there too, right? Because there is all the complexity you're talking about, but also like even myself over the course of time, how I react to different types of cannabis changes, right? And um, uh, uh, patients uh, that I, you know, consult with who, um, you know, have menses, you know, the different points in their cycle, they react differently. And um, it makes it terribly complex, like you are suggesting. And um, I think that the golden rule of that's got to be start slow and low, right? Don't jump in, you know, start with a small amount, uh, keep a journal, increase it slowly. And, you know, you'll find yourself from 2.5 milligrams to 5 milligrams to 7.5 to 10. And then maybe at 12 and a half or or 15 milligrams, you'll go like, okay, I think I've, I think I've topped out where I want to be for the moment until I can get into a better relationship with, uh, with this drug, this medicine, right? Um, the, the challenge is when you either get patients who don't know well, you know, enough. And so they'll, they'll take a few gummies, um, and suddenly they're at 40 milligrams or, or God help me, you eat, a, a you know a ten milligram cookie, you get the munchies, and then you eat the rest of the bag, right? Oh. And because like you know now now you double down the badness, and then um, my number one pet peeve is um, people who are turning their friends onto uh, dab oil, and they think it's funny to give them a huge dab and blow them out. Like I can't imagine. I don't understand how somebody who's gifting their friend the experience of dabbing would also want to start off with a traumatizing experience. You know, I mean, and I and I like dabbing. I think dabbing dab oil is a is a like fantastic thing to explore in cannabis. But like traumatizing your friend for humor, that's just dumb, and I don't support that at all. Um, 
So yeah, to, to the point would be when people are just getting into it, um, I encourage them to, um, you know, most people have got an idea whether or not they want to smoke or have an edible. They just, they seem to come to the conversation with that knowledge already and, and either tell them to, uh, you know, just like pick up a, pick up a little one hitter and smoke the tiniest amount of cannabis. And cause like you can, you can have a great time all day in multiples of one hitters, right? You can have a day that, you know, Oh, I smoked 11 one hitters one day all day long, but you're getting it in measured doses instead of like maybe firing up a, a big ball, a big bong or, or something and going from like, you know, zero to a hundred like so super fast. And same thing with edibles, you know, start with, you know, start with two and a half or five grams, make sure you're not overly sensitive to it. And then slowly go from there, but always milligrams, you, right? Milligrams. What are, oh yeah. I'm not sure. What, <laughs> what did I say? You said, you said grams. I just, oh yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No 2.5 to five milligrams would be, you know, an appropriate place for anybody to start. Yeah. And just bouncing off what you just said, I'm and anyone who is an avid cannabis user, you've been using cannabis for a long time. Just a reminder to be a good friend and a good advocate to your friends. If they if they've never used cannabis, they might not even know how to like use a lighter and, and smoke a bowl. That's something you can help them with without judgment. Uh, they're probably already tentative coming into the situation. So just being a good friend, uh, being a good advocate is really important. And another point you made about some women being on their period and they might uh, react differently to cannabis during that time. These are also things, as you were saying, that you can record in your journal. Even other exercises in your daily practices that might uh, change the levels of your naturally occurring endocannabinoids is still going to influence the way cannabis medicine affects your body. So that could be going for a run or some other form of exercise. It could be meditating. It could be things like this that you could, you don't need to just in that journal have like a very distinct and repetitive uh, formula for recording your cannabis. If you are trying other ways to increase your naturally occurring endocannabinoids, you should write that in the book and write how it made you feel. And if you have some sort of chronic illness or some other illness, write if it made any of those feel better for you. It's still extremely relevant. Well, I have a brutal dab story. But to keep a long story short, which I do have a tough time with sometimes, I'll just say I do completely agree with this. Hey, everybody, it's Andy. Just a quick recap and a word from Smoke and All, our company, which sponsors this podcast. We are patients first here. We pride ourselves on that, and we talk about it all the time. So if you've heard it before, you're going to hear it again. Becoming an advocate for yourself or a loved one can be very scary, but it is super important. No one will understand your pain the way you will understand your pain. You are the expert at you. So learning about how cannabis or any other product for that matter works can help you to maximize the benefits and minimize any potential negative effects. Making your intentions very clear can go a long way when you're having these difficult conversations. But it is a lot of work. So thanks for being here and doing the work alongside us. Now here's a quick break and we'll jump right back into the conversation. Thanks everyone. While we're thanking our awesome listeners, this episode was inspired by messages like this review from Airbender Andy. It's titled The Peanut Butter in Our Firecrackers, and that made me laugh and remember the last time that I had firecrackers, but that's a story for another episode. The review says, I'm always that person at a party who starts talking about the science behind how weed affects your sleep when everybody else is like, 
I don't really care, but okay. So this podcast is definitely up my alley. I'm excited to improve my understanding of the endocannabinoid system and all the hard-to-find info about cannabis that I've been curious about. Thanks so much for taking this deep dive into science while making sure it's easy to absorb. Thank you, Airbender Andy. Thank you so much, Airbender Andy, and I love your name. These reviews help us stay motivated and really help the podcast grow. The biggest opportunity for changing the stigma is not conversations in the lab between us scientists, but conversations in the living room between real people and their community, like all of you. So thanks. Before we hear from Andy with a quick message, just take a moment and unclench your jaw, take a few deep breaths, and try not to focus on other stressful things in your life for the remainder of this conversation. Most people prefer the effects of smoking over edibles. The most important reason why is heat transformation of cannabinoids, the active ingredients in cannabis. Unlike conventional edibles, edibles made with smokinol contain heat-transformed cannabinoids from smoke. Edibles made with smokinol feel more like smoking. If you are a product manufacturer, contact us today. Smokinol, we smoked it for you. So, Shango, we've talked a little bit about some of the best practices to use for some specific patients. But if people have chronic illnesses or they have um, their immune compromised with chronic inflammation, is there any um, specific advice you would give for these people to start to understand um, how to start their journey with cannabis as medicine? Yeah, that that example, people get so frustrated, right? Because they, by the time they've gotten to cannabis, they've probably already gone through the Western medical system and their, their general practitioner didn't have anything for them. And then they got referred to a specialist who didn't have anything for them. And all this time they're suffering, right? Maybe they're in pain or they're having mental issues or whatever it is. And so it's getting worse and worse. They're getting more and more frustrated. And then they, they're like, okay, I'll try cannabis. And then um, perhaps they don't have, you know, the same experience with cannabis that most people do, because so far we've been mostly talking about, you know, general rules for getting to know cannabis, right? But like, like for lots of people, the general rules don't solve what's going on for them. And so maybe they need to use like a more exotic preparation, you know, maybe they need to, instead of just like, you know, have an edible, maybe what they actually need is to get a specialty oil with specifically CBD and CBG in it. And they need to take it three times a day. Like things can get really specific, really fast. And finding those products are incredibly different, difficult, which is one of the reasons I always uh, suggest that whenever possible, patients become um, self-sufficient in their cannabis by having... um, you know, a little home grow, even if you just grow some plants for the summer on your porch, that's going to last, you can process into your medicine and last you the rest of the year. Um, I really like the idea of people growing their own, having a connection to the plant and, and, you know, making these simple oils, which are all very easy to make um, at home. And then you're in control of your own health. So I really care for that. But my heart goes out to everybody, anybody who's watching who is a, a chronic health person or has immune compromised or, you know, has got first rheumatoid arthritis or something. And then all this other stuff on top of it, because, um, you know, you've got you've, you're you're being suggested all these pharmaceuticals for this and that. And now you're you're trying to get cannabis in the mix. 
and and trying to figure out which part you are changing is changing how you're feeling. It's all very hard, difficult and disheartening. And you know, there isn't an easy answer to that. I don't have a, oh, here's this thing that you do. But there are a couple best practices. Um, we've already talked a lot about the journal, right? Um, journaling your cannabis use is absolutely essential when you have got a complex diagnosis um, so that you can like kind of pick apart what's going on. Um, the second thing would be um, to try to put yourself in contact with somebody um, who is um, well-versed in the different ways to use cannabis. Um, maybe it's a local bud tender, but maybe it's not because in lots of states, they're not even allowed to talk about actual medicine. And a lot of bud tenders don't necessarily know the details that they'd want. Um, perhaps it is your aunt though, right? Who, who doesn't really talk about it, but takes it for her chronic pain because she was in a car accident in her 20s. And, and, but now she's like the family expert in it. So, so get that kind of knowledge from somebody who has been down this chronic uh, path. Um, you know, there's a lot of forums as well online where um, and I don't, I don't just mean like, uh, like, um, you know, like just, just on Instagram or just a Facebook thread. I mean, there are specific groups and forums of patients who are using cannabis who have got what you've got. And you can learn best practices from each other because we're all stronger in community. And, um, <clears throat> and, in the, and I guess the last thing I would say is experiment, 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 because um, you don't know what's going to work until you try a whole bunch of things and don't give up on cannabis just because the first couple things didn't work. Um, you know, you might end up needing a very unique solution. And um, it's amazing as an extreme example, uh, it's amazing after I learned how to properly um, uh, teach people on how to use suppositories, how many people suppositories work best for because they need higher doses of cannabinoids that would really, you know, make them high and give them a, you know, um, you know, dysphoric experience. But then they start using suppositories. And now for the first time, their pain is controlled because they're taking enough THC. And, you know, that's a pretty sophisticated place to get. Um, but anybody who identifies as, as, you know, being, you know, a chronic patient with a host of symptoms, they know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. And as you were saying, I mean, chronic pain is, is a multifaceted disease typically. And maybe you don't just need one specific extract or concentrate. Maybe you need to use multiple forms of cannabis. Maybe you need a topical cream for some component of your arthritis that's acting up, but you also need a suppository or a concentrate that's going to help you with something more pain related. Um, let's chronically occurring. So not just choosing one thing that you're hoping to work, but also over time experimenting with adding different components and different ratios and seeing how the combination could help you as well. I'm going to speak a little bit on firsthand experience of just my personal routine as, as an example. Um, this is not a recommendation, a formal thing. I'm not a medical professional, but this is just the ways that I use cannabis that help me personally. And I know that there's this hopelessness that pervades having a, a chronic illness, especially chronic illnesses that flare and affect each other. And one flare will cause another flare and another one. So I use many, many different types of cannabis products. I use many different types of cannabinoids. And I also utilize specifically 
three big ones that are big categories, topicals, edibles, and smoking. I use all the different types of cannabis for all the different or all the different methods of using cannabis for different purposes. Um, a lot of people shy away from topicals or um, like lotions or salves um, because there is a debate whether or not the cannabinoids will enter in beyond the skin and pass into the bloodstream. Um, one thing I just want to point out about that and about topicals, because I am a huge fan of topicals, is that uh, the skin is the largest organ in the body and that your skin, everywhere that you have a hair follicle, every place that your skin will grow any sort of hair, you have CB1 receptors on the stem cells at the base of that hair follicle. And it's in control of the health of the skin and that the health of the skin actually does affect the rest of your body and that that signaling can be a cascade that we just don't um, understand. Although people who have eczema or psoriasis certainly understand how the skin can affect the rest of the body. Um, and cannabis and cannabinoids are really powerful anti-inflammatories. And that the reason why these different methods work for me, at least I believe in my theory, is because I'm reducing inflammation in different parts of my body in different ways and over different amounts of time. So smoking is really immediate. You absorb those cannabinoids immediately. They're in your bloodstream and you're reducing inflammation. Very specifically for smoking, for me, I'm targeting the brain. Because when you smoke, you inhale things, it goes in your blood from your lungs and goes to your brain without being metabolized between 10 minutes, 15 minutes. For edibles, that's a longer form anti-inflammatory. I'm targeting my GI system with that, trying to expose my GI system to the cannabinoids to help with mobility or motility. And then for topicals, I'm targeting local inflammation and that like you actually reach a larger concentration sometimes using topicals because imagine when you're taking an edible or when you're smoking, all of the cannabinoids are sort of evenly, not completely evenly, but they get dispersed amongst the entire part of your body versus with topicals, you can really get a localized effect. And I find that I don't really experience, if I'm in a huge flare, it's not necessarily one thing over any of the others that helps. It's for me, a true combination, a combined effort of, of everything at once, um, which that is just, you know, what has worked for me. And I think that the, the frustration that people get when something doesn't work is valid and makes perfect sense because these things sometimes for other people, you know, one or all of them will work to reduce their, their symptoms. And, Especially for most people, when they call they, to experiment, they have to pay money at the store, right? I mean, just to find the right topical that works for you, to find something that isn't, you know, all isolate or or um, has got the blend of cannabinoids that you're looking for. If you're paying 50, 60, 70 bucks a jar and it takes you to your fourth or fifth one to find one that works for you, suddenly you're in 350 bucks. Like that's that's pretty luxurious spending for most folks. Right. With topicals too, Riley did research on skin permeability of CBD. And I we've been geeking out over this. I very much so believe that the natural fats in the plant play a role. In yeah. And, and on Shango's note about just the money that it costs to make these topicals, a lot of the topicals on the market are not formulated to get those, to get CBD or any of the other cannabinoids actually into, like, to permeate deeper. They're just marketing their products really well. 
and using the same formulation for their products that they use for everything else. And in that case, if you have a product you really like that you know works, even if you were to have a tincture that works very well, you could take a, a normal cream, like cream and add that to the cream and then use that as a cream because if you just have a vino daily moisturizer you can put cannabis in that because cannabinoids are lipophilic meaning they like fat and creams are like we'll call it fat-based, more fat-based. Whereas something like a gel, you don't want to add cannabis tinctures to a gel because gels are water-based. So it's not going to go into solution as well. But you can take any old tincture, add it to any old moisturizer that is cream-based and use that as a cream. And then your variable that you're going to test on your body is the tincture or whatever other product you have that you can add into that. And then that's going to save you hundreds of dollars in your experimentation process, especially if you're making your own tinctures. Yeah. And in my experience, if, if you're using a tincture that has some amount of ethanol still in it, uh, it'll work much better. Um, um, early in my cannabis career, like, I don't know, maybe this was eight years ago or so. I mean, the legal one, um, uh, <laughs> uh, I worked with a company and we were, we, they, we had a whole health and beauty aids department and they had all these very talented, um, formulators who were using like emu oil and all this kind of stuff. And it all smelled great, but I didn't think any of them worked effectively as a topical. I did not think they successfully took the cannabinoids through the dermis. Right. Well, then I was making my own tincture because I'm a self-sufficient patient and I make my own medicine. And I was making tincture without gloves on. And um, I was uh, filtering and then squeezing the um, coffee filter to get out the plant material. And so I kept on touching it. And then I realized after about 45 minutes that I was really sedated because I was getting all of this um, THC through my hands. And it was the first time that I'm like, oh, this must be what like, like a proper topical feels like if you use too much of it, right? And so I'm like, oh... The, the alcohol takes it through my skin, unlike any of the Ema oils or jojoba oils or any of that stuff did. And like, I don't intend to like diss those oils, but I finally found something that worked, worked. And so I went to the ethanol. And so um, now when I make the topical that um, I send my dad for his knees, I, like you recommend, I just grab a good unscented massage lotion that is just like nice. And my dad likes the feel of it. Right. And then I take a syringe of RSO that I have made a, a, a cannabis concentrated oil, which is easy to make at home. And I just squirt that syringe into it. And I like whip it up with a little spoon. And then when he puts it on that little bit of residual ethanol that's in the cannabis oil that was ethanol extracted it's all it needs and it goes right through and the topical works great. And then like, you know, anybody can do this in their own kitchen. This is not rocket scientists. You just need to get off the whole oil and onto the residual ethanol. And if you really wanted to make your own cream base, it's actually pretty easy to make as well. With and just fun. a few ingredients. It's fun. Like I love making everything myself too. Like I have a complex where I think I can do everything, which is kind of bad, but I like to make everything. <laughs> you can do, you can do an awful lot to be fair. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but I mean, and if you like were uncomfortable with that, you can even go to a website like makingcosmetics.com and they sell silky cream based lotion and it's just like an unscented base cream. And then you can use that to add in for each of your formulas, whatever you prefer. But there's so many different ways to make cannabis medicine and be self-sufficient and know that you're putting quality product into that topical that you want to use yourself or give someone else to use because there's a lot of products on the market that have very little active ingredients in them and they're they're not made with quality material and that's unfortunately kind of the truth behind it at least in my opinion from what i've researched when i was studying topicals i I just want to note one thing um i want to i want to give a word of support to anybody who is a chronic patient who is listening to us talk about making this stuff at home because we're telling you because we want you to save money but i know that there is a certain level of you who are there crying because it's hard for you to even watch this screen and the idea that you're going to do research and then go and go out and buy these products maybe you can't even drive anymore and and to be able to like stand up and focus and do that for a couple hours like my heart goes out to the patients that are already to that part where they're not functioning effectively. And it's like trying to put the cart before the horse, right? They're all like, I need to have the medicine first so I can even move. So then I can make more medicine. And, um, I don't have a, I don't have a solution to that horrific cycle, but I've talked to enough, enough patients to know that you're out there and just know that you're not alone. That's such a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Shanga. Yeah, the have you guys heard of the spoon theory or yeah. the the spoon? Yeah, so in in the spoon theory, it's like everyone has a certain amount of spoons in a day, and like if you want to do the laundry, it takes a spoon. Doing the dishes takes a spoon. Going to work takes all your spoons. But like if if you have um, a chronic illness, and sometimes if you're in a flare, instead of ten spoons in a day, maybe you only have three spoons. You can only choose three activities that you can do. Um, one thing that has helped me is to accept that I don't have many spoons and that it's okay to not be able to help yourself sometimes, but that is just, it is incredibly one of the most frustrating things. And I also would encourage people who have chronic pain to look into, um, willow bark because willow bark works really, really well with cannabis. Willow bark has salicylic acid in it, which is very, very similar to aspirin and one of the earliest ever anti-inflammatory molecules to be discovered. And all of the topicals that I make are always crude extract with both willow bark and cannabis in them. Um, And also to explore non-isolate, very complicated topical solutions that have both CBD and THC and as many of the other cannabinoids present as possible because the more chemodiversity or number of molecules that you have present in an, in an extract, um, in my opinion, if you are a complex person with a complex disorder, it is more likely that you might find something that works for you or that works together. On that same note about topicals and chemodiversity, um, there's actually data published that uh, monoterpenes found in cannabis and many other plants actually help the permeability of cannabinoids through the skin. So mm. that's another piece of evidence suggesting that the the complex extracts that encompass the cannabinoids, the terpenes, the flavonoids, everything, it's going to not only uh, help you, as Miyabi was saying, from a medical standpoint, just because you have different compounds present that can interact with different components of your skin, but those 
terpenes are allowing those molecules to penetrate deeper and potentially um, give you even more benefits. So I'm going to switch gears here because I really want Shango to explain this metaphor. And I want to switch gears and ask you, Shango, we're going to do a little, we're going to do a little blitz where I'm going to ask you to explain something. And then we're going to explain why it's scientifically correct and why people should use it as a metaphor. So, Oh, man, all right. (laughs) Okay, here we go. So if you were to explain the endocannabinoid system to someone who has, like, zero knowledge of neurotransmitter systems, what would you say? Right on. Good. I'm glad you started with one that I'm I'm practiced at. So, so, you know, when, when I'm talking to a patient, they usually get like a 20 minute version explanation of the endocannabinoid system, but this is really what brings it home. Um, I tell them that the endocannabinoid system is like a um, second grade classroom. And when the teacher is in the classroom, um, all the kids are, you know, generally doing what they're supposed to be doing and they got their heads down and they're, they're learning like they're supposed to be. But if at some point the teacher needs to leave the room, um, at some point, one of the kids will crack up or, or, or make a joke or something. And then another kid will, and then another kid will. And that's the same way that our endocannabinoid system works is that when the endocannabinoid system is, is being regulated properly and we're not endocannabinoid deficient, um, it is acting like a, a thermostat or a governor on all of our different body systems. And, um, um, you know, everybody's doing its job. If a, if a system is running hot, it cools it down. And if a system is being sluggish, it, it pricks it back up. Just make sure everything stays in balance. But when it doesn't, when our endocannabinoid system does not have enough signaling molecules in the form of cannabinoids, um, it's in endocannabinoid deficient. And so it's not communicating with all of the systems correctly. And what we do to replenish that is to use cannabis, which adds phytocannabinoids. So just like when the second grade teacher comes back in the room and says, all right, all right, all right, you know, all of you all settle back down. That's the same thing that happens when we we start to take cannabis supplements because we're getting these endocannabinoids, um, these phytocannabinoids into our system that are acting like the second grade teacher restoring balance to our body, just like the teacher does to the class. And so the, the best thing for us is to have a lifestyle or a lifestyle plus supplements, which allows um, the cannabis to continue to regulate as, as it wants to. Like a substitute teacher. <laughs> like, like, like your teacher. So people really tend to get that, especially when I say like, and they leave the room. As soon as I say, when the teacher yeah. leaves the room, everybody knows what's going to happen. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I, I know where you're going. And it works. It works one-on-one and, and it and actually gets quite a few laughs if, when, it's a, when it's like a room full of people. Before we dive down deeper, does anyone ever just not care about the endocannabinoid system? And they're just like, all right, that's that's cool that that exists. I'm just trying to feel better. Like, I don't care how. Yeah, actually, I've had that happen twice. And they were both severe pain patients. That's, they're all that's like, what I was going to say. Yeah, it makes sense. It does. One of them even told me, he's all like, listen. I came to you because everyone says, you know what you're talking about. And I trust my friends. He says, but, but I just hear you like, um, the, the Charlie Brown teachers. He's like, I can't, I can't listen to you. I'm in too much pain. 
Just yeah, tell me what relief. to go. Just yeah. tell me what to go get and how much to take. And I'm like, got it. Let's give you the short version. Um, what's interesting about that particular person is they got on um, a heavy dose of cannabis, which helped a lot. But actually, what what solved their uh, systemic pain problem was low dosing LSD. Interesting. Microdosing it reset their switches in their brain and wow. their um, their their central pain. Um, the symptoms went away. Wow. Powerful. That's so amazing that they found relief. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. Also that it works probably in combination with cannabis. And this is just going to be like, we had to have a whole nother entire episode on serotonin and <laughs> endocannabinoid system mechanics or wait, we've done that, but yeah, you can, they can come one? listen to you on my show talking about that. <laughs> we'll have to revisit it in the practical, in the practical application sets. But I, I think um, I wanted to make a, a comment on extending the metaphor of the teacher because mm -hmm. similar to how the endocannabinoid system and phytocannabinoids can function as like a teacher or a substitute teacher in a classroom, I feel like in a similar way, it's undervalued in society. <laughs> like teachers are so important. Teachers play such an important role in society and we really take them for granted. And I really feel that that's a similar way that people feel about the endocannabinoid system where it's really not given the credit that that it deserves. And that's just one of the reasons why, like, I, I really love that metaphor because it also makes sense in terms of control and that the endocannabinoid system regulates and controls many of the other systems and processes as an oversight. And learning how to describe the endocannabinoid system to someone like your family members or someone who has a, a bad, um, vision of what cannabis is, that can be a tool you can use to describe how it is medicine. Because for a lot of people, that's kind of the pivot for them. When they find out, oh, you have an endocannabinoid system, the reason that we talk about cannabis being beneficial for what seems like everything is because the endocannabinoid system is involved in almost every system in your body. So it's not like we're just all stoners making this stuff up and going, yeah, dude, good one. Like that, let's add it to the list. Like there is real science science here where we have a system that we're now understanding we can manipulate just slightly to benefit us and relieve pain and relieve anxiety. But it is a delicate system and it needs to be treated like that because there are ways you can overdo it as we were talking about the biphasic nature of THC. So understanding that system and just some of the nuances can really add to our understanding of this medicine. Well, Shango, for the last section of this podcast episode, we want to give you open mic to talk about anything that you want, something that you're passionate about, something that you want to let our listeners know. It can be cannabis related. It can be non-cannabis related. Whatever you like, the floor is yours. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm most excited about in cannabis right now is a new variety of cannabis plants called autoflowers. And autoflowers are unlike the traditional cannabis plant, which uh, most cannabis plants start to flower in the late summer um, due to shortened days of the sunshine. But people who don't live in California may not have optimized growing situations like California does. Uh, I live on a small island 
island called Vashon Island up here in the Pacific Northwest. And it starts to get cold nights under 50 and rain here by the end of September. And so many of the traditional cannabis plants just won't grow here. They won't finish. And so the medicine doesn't get finished. And so luckily they found this very rare variety of cannabis in Siberia that since their summers are so um, short, as soon as the plant matures, it immediately starts to flower. It doesn't wait for the short days. And so, you know, earlier on the program, we've been we've been talking about patients being self-sufficient and, and how easy it is just to grow a couple plants on your deck and then make your own medicine from it so that you can, you know, do your own individualized medicine. Well, these autoflowers are a huge tool for that because, um, uh, you can plant your seeds wherever you live the beginning of June, and most varieties will be ready to harvest in 70 to 100 days. So that means that you can start them in June and, and pick the, you know, harvest the plant sometime in August when most of us are experiencing our drought time of year. And so um, it has just absolutely been liberating for patients to not have to fight with making greenhouses or have putting all this effort into their plants only to have them mold at the end of the season. And so, um, and so, you know, if, if, if we're going to end this show on, on something positive and hopeful and optimistic for me, I would say right now it's autoflowers because it's encouraging more and more patients to become self-sufficient. They're a lot of fun to grow. And um, unlike a lot of the, like the hip strains that, that need long summers of California, autoflowers can grow pretty much anywhere in the country. And so, so that's something that uh, I'm stoked about. I love that topic, Shango. And I think that's going to help a lot of people. Is there anywhere you would suggest these people buy seeds for their autoflowers? Or is this, you know, if you live in a legal state, are they pretty easy to find? Or how would they go about starting that journey? Well, happily, uh, mail order seeds in the domestic US are very easy now. I mean, people used to go to prison for this, but they are not anymore. And so um, uh, I recommend uh, Hembra Genetics. Um, the Hembra Genetics Collection, they've got like 100 different different varieties of, of, of autoflowers from, from different breeders, um, actually across the world. And, um, and it's a woman owned and operated company and, um, um, and, you know, they're, they're just, they're just nice folks with a good variety with a lot of breeders that I recommend. So, you know, there are multiple places that you can get seeds online. You can just uh, search autoflowers, but if you, if you want to make a good choice right off the bat, I recommend uh, hembragenetics.com. Good folks. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on our podcast, Shango. This is so awesome. Um, is there anywhere where people could find pictures of your autoflowers? <laughs> Oh yeah, sure. So if you want to see the pictures of my plants and the plants of other patients also here on Vashon Island where I live, the best place for that is to go to Instagram. Um, you can follow my personal Instagram, which will, um, you know, I, I teach a lot about cannabis medicine and, and, and cultivation, but also, you know, like when I go to conventions and stuff and I see cool things, it's on there as well. So, so it's just generally a lot of fun to follow that along with, um, at, Shango Los, my name on Instagram. And then while you're there, you can go ahead and follow my podcast, uh, Shaping Fire, um, there on Instagram as well. And you can find out, um, you know, all the podcasts and subscribe to the newsletter if you want at shapingfire.com. And of course, I got to plug the episodes with Miyabi, right? Uh, Miyabi and I have done three fabulous episodes, actually, some of the most popular episodes that we've done at Shaping Fire because of Miyabi's, um, you know, very unique 
mix of deep scientific knowledge and um, you know uh, storytelling and an ability to like make these complex things clear for folks. Uh, we've done two episodes on the mechanics of the endocannabinoid system, which are just fabulous, and then we've done an episode uh, explaining the brain chemistry that happens when you microdose psilocybin mushrooms. And um, so all, all three of those episodes are very popular. So I invite all of uh, your folks to come by Shaping Fire and uh, check us out. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope this conversation has been useful. If you have any questions or suggestions for the podcast, please give us a shout on Instagram at smokeandall. Or if you're a processor who's interested in working with us, please email us at sales at smokeandall.com. If you want to support us in our effort to destigmatize plant medicines, please review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you already have, thanks so much. Extra special thanks to Samsonite 55, Felly Cab, Absolutely, John the Bow, QD 1994, Old Geek One, CJ Sloan, Tony Rome, Beth in New Hampshire, La Playa 34, Maya 1722, Zzz, <laughs> Portfolio, CK Dascam, Airbender Andy, James T84, Sync One, Cool Bean King, C5X2C, Surge Near, Someone from New Zealand, Gerson, Tabs 24, John Van Dyke, and Telfer C. These dedicated listeners took the time to write us a review, and that really makes a difference to us. Mad love, my friends. Thank you for the support, and we'll see you at the next Smoke and Science Sesh. <laughs>